following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Some of you, I know, have found yourself in a situation where you thought things were really bad and nothing else could go wrong. Really bad. And nothing worse could happen to you. And then something worse happened. Then something else went wrong. Perhaps you know the story of Horatius Spafford. He lost his wealth in the Chicago Fire of 1871. He sent his wife and four children back to England as he wrapped up business in Chicago. While they were in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, their ship collided with another ship, and 200 people drowned, and all four of his children. His wife arrives in London and sends him a very simple but poignant telegraph, safe, alone. As he makes that journey then, a bit later, the captain of the ship on which he's traveling points out to him the place where the collision occurred. And at that time, he wrote these words. And peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Now, this is the attitude that our sovereign God desires to cultivate in each one of us. This attitude expressed in this hymn. This is the attitude of Job as we have begun to look at his life. In these first two chapters, we get the background of, of the greater part of the book. The background is the absolute uh, holiness of Job and the trials of God. The testing of Job and his response to those tests. And then with chapter 3, we will get into the series of dialogues between Job and his three counselors, whom by God's grace we will meet uh, next week. Now, Job was first attacked by Satan, as you remember, um, where he was stripped of all of his possessions, of all of his servants, but a handful, the household servants, plus the, the four that were spared to bring him the bad tidings. And Satan is tempting him to curse God, whispering in his ear that obviously God is a terrible God and cares nothing for him. But we know that Job passed that test, that he mourned the loss of his children, his servants, his wealth. But he fell down and proclaimed the excellence of God and worshipped him. But Satan's not finished. And so we come today to uh, the second and even more severe trial in the life of Job in these first 10 verses of Job chapter 2. And what I want to show you here is, is that uh, uh, 
uh, in intense temptation and trial, we must rest in the wise and sovereign provision of our God. In the midst of intense trial and temptation, we must rest in the wise and sovereign provision of our God. We'll follow the same pattern we did before in the first part of this chapter. We will look at the challenge, the attack, and the response. Now, the challenge, for the most part, is exactly as we read earlier in chapter 2, or in chapter 1. Again, there was a day, verse 1, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And here is this picture, whether it was literal or a way of God communicating to us the accountability of angels. I tend to think it was literal. The God holds court. And the sons of God are the angels of God who come to report to God the various activities, the consequences of the missions on which God has sent them throughout his created world. But you notice that Satan also is among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, I remind you that Satan uh, was the archangel who led thousands of other angels in rebellion against God and were cast out of heaven and became the enemies of God and of his church here on earth. Uh, The Satan here is the, the number one who controls all the devils and the demons. Uh, But you notice that he came into the presence of God to present himself. He, too, is held accountable. And that is a very precious thought to us, that though this fiend is is powerful and, and much stronger than we are and much wiser than we are, he's under God. He comes to present himself to God. God compels him to give an account by saying to him in verse 2, where have you come from? God's not ignorant. This is a way of calling Satan to an accountability. And Satan, with that same evasive answer we saw in chapter 1, here in verse 2, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. He could have been no more evasive, could he? He's out trekking. He's just wandering around. He's a sightseer. No, we know from Peter that he is a lion, roaring, circling, seeing who he may devour. He's out with absolute evil intentions, with all of his demonic servants in him, uh, working evil throughout the world, in world affairs, in the hearts of boys and girls, and men and women. As he gives us accounting, God once again holds up Job, his champion, but also, in a sense, the bait. Have you considered, verse 3, My servant Job. There's no one like him on the earth. And here God repeats what he's already said about Job, but how we introduced Job in chapter 1, verse 1, these four things. A blameless man, sincere and holy, upright, walking righteously before his neighbors, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then the stinger. And he still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me to ruin him without cause. Now, God's actually saying two things here, I think, about Job. In the first place, um, that the afflictions under, that Job underwent were not because of sin. We, we know that, as, as we've already seen. But God is asserting that, that there was nothing in Job that God was so, so severely disciplining. 
Now, we all need chastening. We all need the trials. But you need to understand that your trials are not always a chastening for sin. They're the general discipline of God, but they're also trials simply that God will be honored in your response to those trials. And so there was no cause in Job. And there'd be many things in you and, and in me for which there'll be no immediate cause. Now, we know our sin, and oftentimes our afflictions brings us back to um, earlier sins. And, and we confess those sins. We realize that we're pardoned them, but we know that it's that God's doing something even more profound in our lives as he was in Job. Now, this also uh, could be understood. And I think if both things are in view here. When God says he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause, it is you incited me in vain to ruin him without cause. In other words, Satan, you failed. Job was victorious. And God, in a sense, is, is just provoking and taunting uh, Satan with the victory of Job. But what's God doing? God knows exactly how Satan is going to respond to this. Satan responds exactly in the way that God has ordained that he would respond to this. And so hear what he says. Skin for skin. Satan answered, the Lord said, verse 4, skin for skin. That's a proverb. We don't actually know what it means, but from the context with the idea, yeah, well, it's one thing to take away a man's possession. He'll do anything to save his life. Let him lose the skin in the game to keep the skin on his back. For you see then what he says. Yes, all that a man has, he'll give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. Now, what's Satan acknowledging here? The sovereignty of God. You see, Satan can't touch him. God has to give this permission to this evil one. God didn't tempt Satan to do this. God did not put the thought in Satan's mind to do this. But Satan knows that he cannot do it apart from God's providence. And you and I must understand that as well. That's why we pray, lead me not into temptation. Put the fence around us, O God, and keep us. Keep us from temptation. Skin for skin. All that he has, he will give for his life. Touch his bone, his flesh. He will curse you to your face. And again, awesome, profound words. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. What? Because of God's grace. What confidence he had in Job. To give him into the power of Satan. With the one provision, you may not kill him. This simply reminds us, as we look at what happens to Job, that nothing enters into our life apart from the loving, wise, sovereign, good pleasure of our God. I don't remember if two weeks ago I used the illustration or not of the Iron Dome in Israel. This Iron Dome keeps about 90% of the, uh, uh, the, the missiles flying uh, into uh, Israel. They're protected. 10% get through. God has an iron dome. Nothing comes through it into our lives except that which our God has 
ordained. God gives permission. But never lose sight of the fact that our God is the God who loved us so much that he gave us his only begotten son. His only begotten son. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, the attack is ferocious. The challenge has been accepted. Job, once again, not even realizing. You understand, he is um, ignorant of all of this. He's God's champion, though, in the middle of the arena. And Satan now rides forth against him. Verse 7, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a posture to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Have you boys and girls ever had a boil? You know how it's just, it's, it's, it throbs, it's, it's red, it's inflamed, it can, be, it can be full of pus. One boil can keep us awake all night. Now can you imagine your whole body covered with these inflamed sores from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet? And then with this, the rest of the book tells us some of the other symptoms that Job had, running sores, he was emaciated, Putrefied flesh, horrendous breath, fever, insomnia, nightmares, excruciating pain, and depression. He had no morphine. He had no medicine. He had a piece of broken pottery with which he would scrape the sores on his body. As for comfort, he sat on this ash heap. The ash heap, probably outside the gates, the the people would burn the dung and the garbage, and they would make this warm pile of ashes. Now, some think he was there for penitence. I think he was simply there for comfort. He didn't stay there all the time. We see other places in the book that he would try to go to bed. That's when he had insomnia or nightmares or whatever. Uh, But this was his place of relief. And he had no hope whatsoever of healing. He had no servants to attend him. He speaks later, they all stayed away from him. He had no doctor to come and administer something to alleviate his pain. No, he scraped himself with a piece of broken pottery as he sat in the burned dung pile. But remember, the physical is just the first part. Now, what's going on? As Job is sitting there in the dung pot, Satan is whispering in his ear once again. Do you think that a kind and loving God would do this to you? You have served him so faithfully. And look how how he has responded, Job. He has brought all of this evil upon you. Not only have you lost all of your possessions, all of your children, but now you are in this excruciating pain and, and there's no hope for you. Do you see how he has just treated you? Tossed you about, done with you as he pleased. Curse him, Job. Don't serve that fiend. Satan, remember, has this kind of access to our minds. He can come and bring these temptations to us. And I can't imagine any regular human being being tempted with greater intensity than this. 
Except remember, he is, he's the picture of one. He was tempted at all points as we are. That includes Job, yet without sin. Who endured a level of temptation that is incomprehensible to us because he was incapable of sinning. Thus, Satan would bring everything he had against him. Every possible temptation to tempt our dear Savior. Because of that, he's able to help us in our temptations. Now, you and I have had some intense temptations to sin. But I think our case is like that of which the writer of the Hebrews wrote about those people. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. We've not yet been placed in the crucible, have we? Not like our Christian brothers and sisters in the Ukraine or in Muslim countries who are being murdered and put to death, deprived, tortured. God's been kind to us. We must then pray for them as God puts them out there as his champions, that God will give them much grace in their suffering. And that through the very grace and suffering that their tormentors would actually come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But now a temptation comes from a completely other direction. You remember we talked about the black, subtle wisdom of the demon. Now out of left field comes a temptation from Job's wife. In verse 9, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? He's confessed his integrity. His conscience tells him that he's blameless. He's upright. He's a God-fearer. He's turning from evil. But she, this could not be happening to you. Curse God and die. The very words of Satan tempting him, tempting him to do exactly what Satan wanted him to do. And how ill-prepared would he have been for that? This was his helpmate. This was his godly wife who helped him in the rearing of their children. Now, some people, I think, are way too hard on Mrs. Job. She did herself believe in God. And you remember, she lost all of her children, all of her comforts. And now she's seen her husband in such abject misery, unalleviated misery and desperation. She simply says, just put an end to it. Just curse him and die. It's this very sober reminder to us that beloved Christian friends can actually, in the midst of a trial, be a source of temptation to us. Our Savior, as he was hanging on the cross, not only was taunted by his enemies when they would uh, say, um, well, if you are who you say you are, come down, we'll believe in you. But he was also tempted through one of his close, closest friends who urged him to turn back from the cross. Give up this business of the cross. Take hold of your rightful kingdom. And you remember Christ's response to him? Get behind me, Satan. He recognized that even in the counsel of a friend can come the temptation of Satan. 
And we must then always listen to the counsel of our friends, even our loved ones, even our spouses, with biblical discernment. To be sure that in some way Satan is not twisting their words to cause us to do exactly that which he wants. But then we also must be very careful, right? In the counsel we give to others in the midst of their problems and decisions to be made or in their trials, that we don't become a tempter as well. But that we would seek by God's grace to speak wisely and and correctly according to Scripture. Now it's this last temptation in this round that becomes the foil now for, for Job's confession, for his response. As he answers his wife, we've seen the challenge and the attack. But in verse 10, he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? I find it quite remarkable. The patient, general response that Job makes to his wife. You know what we do. We can have a, you know, be hurting or be tired of something and how we'll bite the head off of someone who comes and says something to us. It might be untoward. It might be really not good. But our response, and our response is also the same way when it's often good. We get irritable and, and we respond irritably. But look at this restraint. He doesn't call her a fool. It's very important that you notice that. That's not the rebuke. Rebuke is you're speaking as one of the foolish women. He's saying, you know better. Your counsel is like the counsel of those who do not know God, who are not living by his will. That's the correction that he brings to her. And then with that gentle reproof, he then makes this remarkable confession. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? He now bows before not just the sovereignty of God, but the wisdom of God. God has bestowed these things on us in his goodness. Now he's taken these things from us. He's brought adversity into our lives. Job is confessing here that we're not God's counselor. We don't have the right to go back to God and and complain, why did you do it that way? No, he says we acquiesce. You and I must acquiesce. We must uh, sing. Whether our tomorrows be filled with good or ill, we'll triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless you still, to marvel at your beauty and glory in your ways, to make a joyful duty our sacrifice of praise. That's what God is training us to do. That's what God is seeking from us, is to rest in this glorious, sovereign power of God. The writer then gives us this testimony. At the end of verse 10, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, some foolishly say that, well, Yeah, he was sinning in his heart, but he didn't speak. No, that's not what's being said here. What was it that Satan wanted him to do? He wanted him to speak curses against God. 
And when the writer tells us he did not sin with his lips, he's simply saying, Job passed the test. Now you understand this, how hard it is to control our lips. Remember those words from James? We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Oftentimes it's our speech that betrays us. Our hearts are more settled. We want to walk with the Lord, but it is our speech that betrays us. It can be speech against God, which is what Satan wants here, where we murmur and complain, but also it can be speech against the other, the tempter, or even the oppressor. In God's providence, as I've been dealing with this text, going through something of a fairly significant trial in the last week. Got to spilled over into... Uh, the life of my son as well. And it's so mindful of the fact that not only am I to submit to God in this, but I'm not to speak irritably about others. About others. I've shared, I think, with some of you that one of the most significant things that happened to me the first time I preached through Job was I became very much un, or less concerned with second causes. Because I've recognized that behind everything in my life, it is my Father's holy, good pleasure. There's no need to get upset. It doesn't mean that we would not use just remedies when necessary. We want to see uh, the persecutors and the evildoers of other people are properly dealt with by state and church. But in our own case, we need to learn to rest. Whatever my God ordains is right. Rest. That's what Job does here. He doesn't sin with his lips. And so he is conquered. He's gone through round two. He has suffered the intense temptation and trial of Satan and has rested in and, and confessed the wise and sovereign provisions of the Lord. He's come out the champion. And of course, in that, he's a type of our Savior, the great champion whom God set forth and allowed Satan to come at with all of his engines and all of his power. And through every temptation, every trial of his life, and finally through uh, the, the agony of the cross and all the mockery and death and burial. He came forth, rose from the dead. He defeated Satan. He's God's victorious champion. And because of Christ, you and I may also be victors over Satan. We are in Christ. In Christ, we participate in his power of his resurrection. He says that... that our feet are on Satan's neck. That he is being destroyed. And Christ's kingdom is coming. And a day is coming when it will be throughout the world. And so as you are tested in the midst of intense trials and temptations, you must rest in this wise and sovereign provision of God. Because, yes, the challenges will go on. God will chasten you and me because of sin, but he's also going to hold us up as champions. To be marveled at 
by devils, by angels in heaven, as products of grace, things that we can never do on our own. And you, and you recognize that in your trials, that there's much more to this than even your immediate suffering. In your trials, there's great ripplings of effects and consequences and uh, proclamations. It also would remind you of the awful malice of Satan. You know, he, we don't think too much about him and his evil and malice, do we? It's more of a cartoon figure sometimes so, with horns and a tail than what is betrayed, portrayed here in Scripture. I want you children and young people to understand that he will come to you day after day. Uh, just as Job was trained through a series of trials, you and I will be trained through a series of trials and temptations. Remember, uh, as we've said before, that every, every trial is a temptation. Uh, God brings us into the arena. And in that arena is the opportunity, by God's grace, to respond according to his will or to respond according to uh, Satan and the will of the world. But it starts when you're very young. It starts, children, listen to me. It starts when you disobey your parents. Because if you disobey your parents, whom are you obeying? You're obeying Satan. You're like a little sheep, and suddenly you've gone out of the sheepfold. You've exposed yourself to this evil being. You get older then. You've learned these patterns of disobedience. And you've trained yourself in disobedience. And he'll come with more malice and hatred and fury. And he'll dangle all the sweet things before you. All the pure approval and all of the happiness of the world. This is who he is. He's masquerading. But it's true for every one of us, isn't it? And I want you to understand this morning, if you're not trusting Christ alone for your salvation, you are under the dominion and power of Satan. I'm not talking about covenant children, I'm talking about adults. This is your master. And there's no hope for you. Unless you flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, who defeated Satan. And all who are in Christ then shall be victorious. But there is no other hope for you. You will remain under his power now and throughout all eternity. As he gleefully shares, or you share, in his torment and everlasting hell. So if there's any doubt in your mind this morning whether you're trusting Christ or not, do not delay. You speak to us. You say, I don't know. I don't know if I'm a Christian. We might be sure you do know. That you too might rest in this beautiful, wise, and sovereign power of God. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.